Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. everyone to November 2022's edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. I'd like to give a special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible. I'm Dr. Remley Crow, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, and we are going to be talking about an exciting paper uh, published in JAMA, which is, of course, one of the top journals, and it is called The Effect of Lower Versus Higher Oxygen Saturation Targets on Survival to Hospital Discharge Among Patients Resuscitated After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. This was from the exact randomized clinical trial, and again, that was published in JAMA. As always, this discussion is paired with an article written by our very own Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. So I encourage all of you to go on the website, check it out. It's under the section education and training, as all months are. Uh, and then I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today. Again, this is a new platform, so we're going to try it out and have a little bit of fun with it. I would love it if you all will participate using the Q&A button. And you can, somebody can test that out and let us know how it works. Um, but as we go through this paper today, keep your questions coming in and we're going to bring those into the discussion as we go and we'll keep this nice and interactive. There's a lot to dissect in this paper. So I think with that, we'll go ahead and just dive right in. Okay. So this study by Dr. Bernard and his team are from Ambulance Victoria and that's in Australia. And the results are again from a randomized control trial that was called the exact trial, the reduction after the reduction of oxygen after cardiac arrest trial. Uh, and the question that they sought to answer is whether or not targeting an SpO2 of 90 to 94% post-ROSC was better than going with traditional care, which has been labeled as 98 to 100%. And the idea behind this, or why does it matter, is that, well, we think that there's this issue with hyperoxia for patients who have been without blood circulation for a while, that it could potentially lead to worse neurological outcomes and even cause some harm. Um, this reperfusion injury is out there. So they sought to answer this question in a randomized control trial in the real world, whereas previously it had only been answered through some observational studies and a little bit of animal data. And so with that, Tony's going to help us. We're going to walk through some of the methods of this paper. Uh, so first of all, let's talk about what kind of study this was and how they went about doing it. Yeah, so this was a really interesting study. Um, there, there's a lot of keywords when we talk about the uh, what kind of study this is, right? So um, uh, again, this was published in JAMA. So um, the keywords are, are certainly important. This was a multi-center parallel group randomized clinical trial um, of unconscious adults with return of spontaneous circulation um, and a peripheral oxygen saturation of at least 95%. Uh, so this was, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, yeah. So let, let's talk about, so again, when we talk about the setting, right, there were two emergency medical services uh, aid, uh, systems and 15 hospitals uh, that participated among two Australian sites. 
one of the things I think that was really interesting about these two different sites, um, and I don't know necessarily that we'd have this much um, uh, difference when we go from one place in the United States to another, but in this, in Australia, they were one place, they had to get uh, consent from their study population and the other, they didn't. And I thought that was, um, that, that, that brings in some really interesting kind of nuances to how you, how you go about this study and um, uh, how, how you, you bring in patients. Uh, so that, that's one thing to keep in mind is the consent process was different. And I think, yeah, and that, I think that brings up a challenge with cardiac arrest research. And this is true in the United States too. So there's this notion of an ethics board, or we call it the institutional review board. And how do you obtain informed consent from somebody who's in cardiac arrest? Well, of course you don't. And so they went about this in an interesting way. And it was also interesting to me, as you mentioned, that in the two different states, they had different processes for how they wanted to handle consent. So it's probably worth just a little bit of time talking about how they achieved that. And you know, is that something we can replicate here? Should we run into some problems? Typically, we, we go with implied consent when there's somebody in a position where they're in cardiac arrest and you're going to give them a life-saving intervention. But in this case, they were able to obtain consent. It's just in a little bit of a different way. So Tony, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So let's talk. So um, let, let me get to that part of the paper where they start talking about consent. Um, patients were enrolled. So they had a waiver and then they received consent for only patients who survived, obviously. Right. Um, and they had to they had to go about that. Uh, can you help me? Um... Yeah. So it was interesting after the waiver, like for the patients who survived, they were able to obtain. Um, it was it was so much. It was whether or not their data could continue to be included in the study. And then for those who didn't survive, they attempted to find relatives and. Also, the relatives had the right to say, hey, I would like my data removed from the study. And we can see it when we get to the results we can talk about. It was a rare occurrence, but it did happen where people actually had their data removed from the study. Uh, so that has some important implications for when we're designing trials for life-saving interventions or things like cardiac arrest. And, you know, what is the right thing to do for the patient? And it goes back to why ethics boards and, you know, IRBs exist in the first place. This concept of benefit needs to outweigh the harm. But I did find it was really interesting that not only could people remove their data, but some people actually chose to do so. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's, it's good to have that option. Um, it, I don't know that we always have that option, uh, but it, it does speak to the, um, the importance and the, um, the, the will of the, of the patient or the participants, right? I mean, that's what we want to make sure that we're not uh, taking advantage of our patients, and uh, it, it's nice that the, their their relatives had the option to remove them if if they so chose. Yep. And so let's talk about who was included in the study. Yeah. So that was really interesting. So they looked at um, patients with uh, return to spontaneous circulation following out of hospital cardiac arrest, and they only looked at patients who they presumed were of uh, a cardiac cause. Right. They had to be 18 years of old or older to participate. And um, of course, they had to, they were unconscious. They had an advanced airway placed. Um, they had to have an SpO2 of at least 95 while receiving uh, more than 10 liters of oxygen. Um, and they were transported to uh, to one of the participating hospitals. Now, what was interesting is the patient, the paramedics determined uh, whether it was presumed cardiac uh, at the time of enrollment. So that's um, and the patients with. Uh, no obvious cause uh, for cardiac arrest, uh, no other obvious cause, these, these, these folks were presumed cardiac as well. 
Um, I thought that their exclusion criteria is really smart. Um, they excluded folks that obviously had uh, non-cardiac non causes of, of arrest. Uh, so respiratory trauma, if they um, were a victim of hanging or drowning, um, and were known or suspected to be pregnant. Uh, and they also removed folks if they found out that they were dependent on others for uh, activities of daily living, if they had a do not resuscitate order, or if they received home uh, oxygen therapy. And all of those were pretty uh, interesting because remember, our, our main outcome here was survival to hospital discharge, right? Um, but some of the secondary outcomes had to do with the quality of life after they were discharged. And that would be harder to measure um, if folks were dependent on others for daily activities. Um, and remember, we're talking about uh, our oxygen saturations. So if folks are receiving oxygen at home, they may have a lower baseline. So I think, and that would be hard to account for as well. So I think that these are some very uh, wise exclusions. Yeah, I think that also helped re remove some of those potential confounders that are more rare. So randomization is intended to get rid of the confounding. It balances it between the intervention and the control group. But when you have something that might be relatively rare, and I don't know the epidemiology of like COPD in Australia as well, but if you're concerned that there's not going to be enough to even it out between groups just by randomization alone, it's a smart decision to exclude those or consider them for a subgroup analysis later. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the randomization because I think that they, they made some uh, interesting choices in the randomization as well. So they randomized folks on a one-to-one -one ratio, um, either by having targeted SpO2 of 90 to 94, this was their intervention group, or uh, 98 to 100, which they called their standard of care group. And um, randomization was in blocks of 10. They did this with a computer-generated code. Um, and they were stratified by which EMS agency um, or system they were they were uh, they were cared for by. Uh, so, and then after randomization, uh, the paramedics were provided um, sequentially numbered blocks with ten sealed envelopes containing cards and in an airway tag indicating which treatment. So either they were going to be the paramedics would essentially open an envelope and see. Um, if this patient was going to be in the intervention group, the 90 to 94% uh, SpO2, or in the, the standard of care group, which was the 98 to 100. Yeah, and I, I think that's interesting. They were able to achieve this randomization at the individual patient level. And we've seen a few clinical trials, and this is always one of the concerns with EMS research using clinical trials, is how do we make sure that the EMS clinicians know which intervention or control to apply? So this idea of attaching the envelopes to the airway interventions was really interesting and it worked, you know, at the level of the individual patient, the other options, and you see this in the pragmatic trials a lot, like in part, the airway trial, uh, they randomized the agencies and that's called cluster randomization. Um, but that also introduces its own kind of noise. So this was a, a patient by patient randomization. And now obviously the EMS clinicians were not blind to the intervention. They couldn't be right. They had to know which one they were targeting. Uh, but I do think this is an important piece is that the statisticians and the people who were assessing for the outcomes afterwards, they were blind to whether or not the patient was in the treatment or the control group. And this helps minimize that bias associated with, oh, they're right on the cusp, but I know like the right answer is that the treatment should have worked. So, you know, even not consciously, it might be more likely to group them a certain way or another. Uh, slightly different, right? If you, right. If you, if 
if you're not blinded. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Blinding the the, the statisticians and um, anyone else uh, that was trained or or looked at this randomization was important. And it's a shame they couldn't uh, just do full full blinding. Um, but uh, there's there's no real practical way to uh, to blind the paramedics in this in this study. <laughs> not that I found, at least. <laughs> Uh, you think about the, the random number generator pulse ox, but I don't know that that would be a good thing for anybody. Um, so let's talk about their outcomes. What what was their ultimate outcome, their primary outcome? And then they had quite a few secondary outcomes that we should probably talk a little bit about. Yeah, I thought, so their primary outcome was survival of the hospital discharge, right? And we've seen this in, in multiple studies. And this is a, this is, uh, is standard. And obviously in something like, like this, uh, cardiac arrest, that's, that's uh, very relevant and it's important outcome study. One of the more interesting things uh, about this paper was not just their their primary outcome, but they had a whole host of secondary outcomes that I think are just really interesting that they looked at. So they didn't just look at um, uh, whether they survived hospital discharge. They looked at a, a host of adverse events that they uh, they identified a priori before the study was planned. Um, so they they looked at some serious adverse events, and we'll talk about those first. And those are sustained hypoxia of less than ninety percent. Um, unresponsiveness to 100% oxygen and uh, a rearrest in the setting of hypoxia. So those were their 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 main serious adverse events that they looked at. Uh, but they also looked at things like uh, rates of rearrest or hypoxia before admission to the ICU. Um, they looked at peak troponin levels, uh, survival to ICU discharge, ICU and hospital length of stay. They looked at uh, causes of in-hospital mortality and then favorable neurologic outcome. And they looked at favorable neurologic outcome, not just the CPC score, which I think we're familiar with uh, by now. We've looked, we talked about a CPC score in a number of uh, studies that we've looked at on uh, this podcast. Uh, and just as a refresher there, uh, one to two uh, in, in CPC scores um, is good function, right? And then... Uh, Five is 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 brain dead. So, um, but then they they looked at a whole host of other measures that, uh, and frankly, I didn't know some of these existed. Uh, so they looked at the mental and physical components of the generic twelve item short form health survey. Um, they looked at the Euroqual five five dimension index. Um, they looked at the Glasgow outcome scale. Uh, that was extended. They looked at the Rankin scale. Um, and there was one more, I think. Nope, that maybe that covered it. But I think that was the last one. But they're essentially all measures of quality and function of life, which I think is ult always ultimately our ultimate goal to look at. However, in EMS data, that can sometimes be really challenging to look at. And I thought they did a really good job at collecting robust data. And we'll talk about, had very low missing data in this study. Yeah. Um, so being able to see not only survival, but quality of life after survival. And I think that's a real big strength of this particular study. Absolutely. Um, and you brought up challenges. Uh, and, and I think that's um, talking about their sample size uh, is where I'd like to go next. And I think the they certainly ran into some challenges there. Um, as basically everybody in the world did uh, when COVID nineteen hit, um, mm -hmm. the study the study had to uh, had to be stopped um, because of COVID nineteen. Their original plan was to enroll uh, one thousand four hundred sixteen patients. Um, if they had were able to hit that, 
they would have that would have given them a 90% power to determine a relative difference of 25% between the two groups. So initially, they were looking at the standard of care group was expected to have about a 35% survival rate uh, to hospital discharge, and they expected their intervention group to have a 44% survival rate. Um, unfortunately, uh, they, they because of this study, they had to um, they had to because of COVID nineteen, they had to stop this study early. Um, so they were not able to reach that uh, those numbers, and they had to make some adjustments for it. Uh, and and I think that um, it's it, it's a good kind of uh, model to follow when you come up when you reach some 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 definitely hard things or, or things uh burdens that you need to overcome in your study they didn't just give up they they, they looked at different ways they can analyze their data um, and they were able to get this published in JAMA so I think that um that this is a good model for uh don't just give up when things get hard yeah. And COVID never messed up anything. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah, I, I think that's an important part. And it was also interesting. It talks about, you know, we say words like power and these statistical terms, they might sound scary, but I think ultimately they did a really good job at planning. So the idea was to make sure they had a big enough sample to detect a meaningful clinical difference when one was present. And they decided in this case, you know, a meaningful difference would be something like 25%. And I'd say maybe you know, for me in cardiac arrest, a clinically relevant difference could actually be even a little bit lower. So they were looking for a really big difference and they planned everything out. Sometimes that doesn't go accordingly, but they analyzed what they had and we still have some really interesting results. But before we go into those, it is worth talking about the analysis. And so one of the strengths of randomized control trials is that often a simpler analysis is actually you're able to work with because you don't have to worry about so many extraneous factors affecting the outcomes because you randomize. So those things should just get distributed equally between intervention and control. But Tony, let's highlight a few things in the analysis, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, they were able to... Um, analyzed between groups uh they so they because they had to they had to end the study early um they they adjusted their plan so they weren't able to look at comparisons between 12-month outcomes um but what they were able to do was they ran a couple models uh so looking at their primary and secondary analysis um uh, and they looked at they they were able to run subgroup analyses uh, where they looked at age um, greater than or equal to 65 years. They looked at differences within sex, uh, witnessed arrest, bystander CPR, shockable rhythms. They looked at time to collapse, and they looked at uh, ST segment elevation MIs. Um, so they, they were able to really still dive into their data and they did some exploratory kind of post hoc analyses that that were not initially planned um, where they looked at a multivariable district regression for survival to hospital discharge by treatment group um, adjusted for known predictors of survival so they were able to adjust for bystander cpr um, they were able to adjust for other life-sustaining treatments so um, i think that even though they came up, they they weren't able to run with their initial analysis plan. They they kind of pivoted and and they were able to give us something that was worthwhile to review. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I think with that, let's go ahead and dive into some of these results. Um, I know that that's the part we're here for, as much as I love talking statistics. But uh, so 
typically in a randomized control trial, you start with this figure one, which is just the flow of inclusion and exclusion. So we can walk through what they had and what they ended up with. So starting with the 647 eligible patients with cardiac arrest that they saw during the study period, it talks through each of their exclusions and lays them out clearly. So interestingly, difficult case scene was the highest one. And, you know, there's not a ton of granularity on what made the scene difficult or um, what that is. But, you know, overall, looking at it, we think about, well, what proportion of cases this is and start to think about, well, how could this potentially influence results? So that was the first flag that I saw when I was reading this paper the first time. Yeah, uh, I mean there were. They Go excluded ahead. more patients than they analyzed in either group. And that's that, that's certainly um, something that, that would throw a red flag most times. Right. And so in a lot of this, some of the data were collected during COVID. So ultimately, they stopped data collection on August 11th, 2020. And it's reasonable to think that during those early days of COVID, there was a lot of noise there. And so that might have been contributing to some of this, but that would be you know, something of interest to follow up with later on exactly what generated these difficult cases and scenes. Same with the 43 unknowns. It's unclear what was going on in those. Um, the, the randomization envelopes disappeared in some cases, which yeah, happens. Right? Yep. Best plan studies, but mm -hmm. sometimes things happen with the data collection. Um, or we miss an opportunity to screen and include patients in a study. Um, and then I thought this was interesting, the short transport time. Uh, resulted in exclusion of four patients. And that might have just been that they, you know, if they had been randomized, they wouldn't have had time to titrate to the effect or particularly in the control group, achieve that 98 to 100% yeah. oxygen saturation. Um, so ultimately they ended up with 428 patients that were randomized and we can see that the groups are about equal. So with that one-to-one -one randomization, it looks like that actually worked. So we see 216 were in the intervention group, which again was the permissive oxygen at 90 to 94%, whereas 212 were randomized to that standard care group, which was going for an oxygen saturation of 98 to 100% at the more than 10 liters uh, per minute. And so then it walks through who was included in the primary analysis. So there were two excluded in the intervention group. And again, this was where consent was either not obtained from a family member or the surviving patient or the patient or family member withdrew the data. Um, and then we see also one more patient in the uh, control group withdrew consent or didn't provide consent rather. Uh, so let's dive in to the next table, which is going to be our table one. And this is again, so figure one and table one are always pretty standardized in research papers. Figure one is the flow of who was in and who was out. And we should have our suspicion based on missing data and what other things may be affecting the results. Now on table one, I want to look at the intervention in the control group and see if there was anything different at baseline that could potentially influence results. And so randomization should, in theory, even these things out. But when it's something rare or sometimes just by random chance alone and we haven't had quite big enough sample size, there can be some imbalance between groups. And so first thing, you know, what are the things that really affect cardiac arrest? Well, age is certainly one of those. But we can see that the age is really similar between groups. They put the median here is at 66 years and then 64 years in the control group. So those are pretty similar. So the breakdown of gender is also rather similar. And then looking at where the cases came from, again, I'm not as familiar with the Australian system, but I would guess that Victoria might be a bigger region or they included more facilities from Victoria. So, but they're even across groups, which is the important piece here. Not that there's 96% in one group and 3% in the other um, for Victoria and South Australia, respectively, for those who are just listening. Uh, then looking at witness status, 
about a quarter of arrests or a fifth of arrests were not witnessed. And then looking at whether or not there was bystander CPR. And I know, Tony, you thought this was interesting. Yeah, there was I mean, a high rate of bystander kudos CPR. To, kudos to Australia because 80, 80%, uh, almost 82% bystander CPR in some cases. Um, that's that 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 is that is impressive, and and I hope we can get we can uh, replicate that in the states uh, sometime soon. Absolutely, and that was one of the first questions when I read that was, well, where are these arrests occurring? Public places maybe more likely to get CPR, but no, this is similar to in the United States. We see that the bulk of cardiac arrests occur in a private residence, so in this case, around 65 percent, uh, and then public place was about a third of the cardiac arrests that were included in the study. And so uh, again, the presumed cause had to be cardiac, so no surprises there. Response time, something important to take into account when we consider our own systems and see if these line up. So about eight, seven to eight minutes, which is pretty in line with what we see. Groups, yep. Yep. And so this table, I broke it across slides because it's rather large and like papers published in high level journals like JAMA tend to be. So I'm gonna go to the second page of table one here. But this is an important characteristic to look at too. And that's the first rhythm presenting yeah, upon EMS arrival. The rhythms I think there is, is important. Well, it's not, it's probably not statistically significant 64 to 60. That's probably an important difference. It could be. Um, I also think it's interesting that so many were shockable rhythms. So I think in the bulk of our data, non-shockable rhythms tend to be the majority, but in this case, you know, almost two thirds were shockable rhythms. Um, but to your point, let's say that we think that 64% versus 60% is a meaningful difference, then we should think about what group this favors. And the group that would be favored is the, the control group, the 98 to 100% in this case, with 64% shockable rhythms versus 60% in that uh, intervention group at 90 to 94%. Um, Looking at defibrillations, one and two as the median, those aren't super different. And then you can think through epinephrine administration was most patients did receive epinephrine. Um, and then they actually look at some of the times which in cardiac arrest is really important. We, yeah. we talk about resuscitation time bias a lot, and, and this is key. So uh, while they didn't do models that take into account time to event, it's good to see it here in table one so that we can say, well, at baseline, were there any differences? And actually in the target SpO2 group of 98 to 100%, the downtime, total downtime was a little bit less at 25 minutes uh, versus 27 minutes in the intervention group. But one of the questions we should ask ourselves is, was their total downtime different because the intervention was more successful or something like that? In this particular study, th that doesn't apply because they had to have ROSC before they would get the intervention. But these are questions when we're reading cardiac arrest studies we should keep in mind. Uh, and then some of the post-ROSC care was also important here because we start to think to ourselves, well, is there anything different in the treatment of the patient at the hospital that could also influence our outcomes? So the things that they looked at were uh, whether or not they received some medications like midazolam, morphine, fentanyl, or ketamine, um, what kinds of airways they had. And then I know that they looked at hypothermia. I didn't see it in this particular part of the table, but uh, in hospital hypothermia was also examined here. And then moving on to this last piece here, the baseline characteristics, just whether or not mechanical ventilation was provided versus uh, usual standard of care there, and then STEMI on 12 lead when they got to the hospital. So that's another characteristic. But again, these were all very similar between the two groups, suggesting that by and large, randomization seems to have worked. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's that that certainly makes you comfortable um, doing the comparisons as we go forward. So I think that's that that was a good sign, sure. Yeah. So now that we we have who was in, who was out, we've looked at the two groups. By and large, pretty similar. Keep an eye on rhythm. Uh, a couple other things there, maybe. Let's go ahead and take a look at table two. So here they're looking at clinical measures in the study, and so looking at. Um, the clinical parameters of pre-hospital pulse oximetry at the time of randomization, and then also at ED arrival. This gives us an idea of whether or not the treatment was adhered to. So it's not surprising to me that we see uh, a higher SpO2 in the group where the target was higher. So we see that in the um, 98 to 100% group, the median there was 99%, and that's what we would hope for. Uh, interestingly, in the target group of 90 to 94%, the median at ED arrival was 97%. So perhaps some challenges with actually keeping the titration low, but that's something that we should keep in mind as we read these results. Yep. And they, they do when we'll get to that, but they, they talk about that in their limitations. I thought was smart. Yeah, and to that end, right, there there was certainly an expected difference in the oxygen flow rate on ED arrival, right, 12 versus 2. Um, the inspired oxygen uh, was uh, certainly in line with what we'd expect mostly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this the, this table, uh, the, oh, there's the hypothermia right there on the bottom. Oh. We're talking about. Yep. It was in table 2, not 1. That is a <laughs> clinical intervention. It makes sense. Sure does. But they're, they're, the, these align mostly, I think, with what you would expect between the two groups. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's interesting. They also compared the measurements with, uh, in hospital, the arterial blood gas measurements. And that's a, that's a key component because, you know, we could probably dive into this a little bit, but there's a emerging body of evidence around pulse oximetry and its accuracy. And that body of evidence suggests a few things. One, that the pulse oximeter tends to be a little less accurate. If we're counting uh, blood gas as our gold standard, it becomes a little bit less accurate as the patients get sicker. And then something for us to consider in areas where there's racial and ethnic diversity, it is less accurate in patients who have higher skin pigmentation. And so when we're making decisions based on a pulse oximeter, but the real reading, the true blood gas tends to be lower on average, this can introduce a lot of clinical bias and some issues. And particularly during something like COVID-19, where you know, we were making a lot of decisions based on those pulse oximetry readings of, you know, do we give this intervention or not? This has huge implications. So I think it's important that they looked at the blood gases here, but it, we should also consider, you know, what are the potential effects of using something like SpO2 in patients who are really, really sick by definition to be in cardiac arrest, you know, might we be making wrong decisions? So converting those, um, those arterial blood gases into percentages and seeing how do they match up with the reported uh, SpO2 is really important. Um, I think it's interesting. All of that on the devices is it goes back to what setting they were validated in. Interestingly, the FDA only requires that a device like a pulse oximeter has to be validated in 10 healthy volunteers. Uh, problems exactly. happen then, obviously, when you take that outside of the setting of healthy volunteers to unhealthy volunteers, and we see those curves start to diverge more and more where the pulse oximeter reads high, but the patient is actually at a much lower blood oxygen saturation as the patient gets sicker. Um, so uh, interesting things to think about if we were to try to operationalize something like this. And then the data that they have here is really valuable on their first blood gas and then their first uh, or their final pulse oximeter in the pre-hospital setting. 
that's yeah. my spiel on that. <laughs> but it's really important. And that, that's important background information to know. Um, maybe SpO2 going forward uh, is is not the best measure. Um, and we, we, we can certainly uh, uh, discuss others uh, in, in important studies like this. Yeah. And speaking of others, you know, they did look at capnography and that's another tool that we have available to us that, you know, again, it would be interesting to see if the capnometers only validated in healthy volunteers, if anything diverges there, but we don't think that one doesn't involve shining light through skin or anything. So we wouldn't think that that would be affected by skin pigmentation, but that's a great point is using the entire toolkit of measurements at our disposal and then confirming upon hospital arrival when we do have a, a gold standard tool available. Absolutely. So I think, um, Let's talk about overall what they found. Uh, the, All right, the, the drum roll, if yeah, you will. So um, let's go ahead and start by saying this was not a statistically significant result, right? Uh, and I think that that a lot of that can be accounted for because they they were not able to meet the, the numbers that they had originally planned to do their analysis. Um, but we talk about this often, and, and I do want to get this out. Uh, their statistical significance should not always drive our decision making right um we're talking about here as you look at this first row under primary outcome survival to hospital discharge um in the intervention group 38 percent survived the hospital discharge whereas in the standard of care group uh 48 percent survived to hospital discharge um while that's not a statistically significant result the odds ratio certainly is trending uh away from the intervention group and um and i would contend that a a 10% difference between groups, um, while not statistically significant, is clinically important. Absolutely. And it didn't go the way that the authors hypothesized. And yeah, I think another thing along with those lines of clin clinical versus statistical significance is it, the 0.05 is a really arbitrary level. And I have tons of statistics history books I could recommend if you're really into why 0.05 got picked. <laughs> but uh, since p-value is a scary word, um, note that this is at 0.05. So it was just on the cusp of significance, but I wanna look at what was the best guess estimate. And so that is what Tony mentioned, that 10 percentage point difference favoring the control, the higher oxygen saturation. Um, and the odds ratio reflects that as well. And it just barely grazes one when you look at the 95% confidence interval. So if we were to you know picture this on a, on a timeline or on a forest plot, most of that confidence interval is on the side of favors the control group, not the intervention. So that's something for us to weigh as we decide, well, is this enough to change practice or, you know, well, there's no difference. So I can just keep doing whatever I want. Right. Eh, the evidence here is very clearly leaning towards the control and away from that intervention of that lower pulse oximetry post-ROSC. So let's talk about some of the other outcomes too, because another thing here that, you know, with epidemiology is consistency in the results. Now, if we find out that you know, some of the results favor the intervention and some favor the control, then we have mixed evidence, but that's not exactly what we see here. So Tony, let's talk through a couple of these secondary outcomes. Yeah. So, I mean, in almost all of the secondary measures, there, there's a slight uh, trend towards um, the, the, the standard of care being the way to go. So when we talk about uh, re-arrest, there's, there's a slightly higher percentage uh, Pre-ICU is a slightly higher percentage in the hospital, uh, and in the emergency department, when we're looking, uh, when we're comparing the the clinical uh, intervention group to the standard of care group, um, this is this is very stark when we look at hypoxia prior to the ICU, 
where we're comparing uh 16 to 31 percent um i think that that's um that's that, that's a big difference that's, that's certainly worth noting and again uh suggest that the standard of care is is the way we should we should go and that was a statistically significant result when we look at hypoxia prior to icu absolutely um, we have a question or comment coming in from one of the audience members from Matt talking about, wow, they have a 38% survival in a control group. Maybe if this had been a lower performing system, that this effect could have been even greater or significant. And that's absolutely true. So having, again, taking this in the context of, oh, this was in Australia in what seems to be a higher performing system where they were able to get to where they were able to respond within seven minutes most of the time um, is an important consideration. And also that... 60% of these were shockable rhythms upon EMS arrival. And so, it, you know, in the US, we, we see that numbers a lot less, but the survival rate among shockable rhythms tends to be high around, you know, one fourth. So uh, I think that all goes to, it takes a system to save a life. And so the system is probably set up a little bit differently and something we could certainly look at and try to learn from and take the best practices out of. But yeah, that's something important to keep in mind anyway. And it would be very interesting to take this to another setting and see if these findings hold true. Uh, and actually, there was a study published in resuscitation a few weeks back by Tanner Smita and his team looking at uh, SpO2 targets. And I encourage you all to check that one out as well. But this was just using observational real world data saying, how did people who had a pulse oximetry uh, that would be considered hypoxia or normoxia or hyperoxia fare uh, when it came to hospital discharge? So we can talk about some of those in a minute, but I do want to focus on a few things here. So in the, the outcomes, again, their primary and secondary outcomes that they were able to examine with the sample size that they obtained, by and large, all of the things are favoring the standard of care. So keeping the oxygen saturation from 98 to 100%. I know we've got a couple more tables we can look at. So I do want to go through them. Like here's the rest of table three, again, looking at um, in-hospital mortality and what caused it for those who did not survive, CPC scores, again, among those who did survive, uh, and then the discharge destination. I think the discharge destination was an interesting outcome. So you know, thinking of if I was picked up from home and then discharged to a skilled nursing facility, that's a different outcome than if I was picked up from a skilled nursing facility and discharged to a skilled nursing facility and vice versa, right? Um, so I think that was an interesting secondary outcome. And one of the other outcomes that I forgot to mention on the last page was they looked at length of stay. But again, they did something really smart when it comes to resuscitation time bias and survival bias. They split their measure for hospital length of stay here at the bottom of the first page of table three. They split it by survivors and non-survivors. Because if we mix them, then it would look like the lengths of stay were much lower than they were because the, the median length of stay for a non-survivor was three to four days, whereas for survivors, 11 days. Uh, so I think this was a really good way of looking at this. And the stratification is important to keep in mind in any cardiac arrest study or anywhere where um, potentially mortality was included as one of the outcomes. Yeah, I agree. That's something that um, can can give a, a misleading um, result if you didn't exclude those or look at them separately, those who survived and didn't survive. I hope to see that in more papers. Absolutely. So that, that was a really great way of looking at it. And then we talked about all of the different secondary outcomes they had here at the end of table three. And then uh, this is an interesting figure too. This is what we were talking about when we said a forest plot looking at the subgroups. And Tony mentioned these in, in the methods is they said, well, 
all right, let's assume what if randomization didn't work exactly in our favor. Let's stratify these out and see, do the trends hold true within each subgroup? And so here on the right is really a picture speaks a thousand words. So looking at whether or not the odds ratios here favor the standard of care or whether they favor the intervention, um, if the odds ratio is entirely left of one, it favors standard of care. And if it was entirely to the right of one, it favored the intervention. And so here, by and large, you can see that all of the point estimates, which are symbolized by squares here, are on the left with the exception of one. And we'll talk about that. Um, so that by and large shows that we're favoring the standard of care, though not all are statistically significant. So if the whisker that's coming out of this overlaps with one at all, we say it wasn't statistically significant at the 0.05 level. But you know, putting on my statistician hat, I want to take into account how much of the whisker is over one and how far away is this dot, the point estimate from one. And so by and large, you can see there's quite a few here where the estimate is statistically significant, like in the case of bystander CPR, uh, when it equals yes. And then you can see a lot of areas where it just barely grazes one. Um, but let's talk about bystander CPR. I think that one was the, the primary interesting finding here is that the results were a little bit different depending on whether or not there was bystander CPR. Yeah, and I think... Um... What they showed was that in the intervention group, uh, those who received bystander CPR, um, they still had higher rates of hypoxia. So when we talk about an SpO2 less than 90%, it was about 30 uh, versus 16%. And uh, re-arrest without return of spontaneous circulation was also 14% versus 4% um, in, when we're comparing the standard care group among those who received bystander CPR. So I thought that um, there's again, really, really a lot of evidence here. While there's not a lot of statistically significant results, there's a lot of evidence here that leads us to maintaining the standard of care. Right. And it's, it's interesting to me, the only one where the point estimate favors the intervention was where bystander CPR equaled no. Um, which we talked about was kind of a rare event in the system, which again goes to Matt's comment of, wow, they're hitting really high survival rates. They also have really high rates of bystander CPR um, and high rates of shockable rhythms and all these things probably feed off each other. Uh, so you also notice that the, the confidence interval around that estimate is a lot wider and that has to do with, it's a smaller sample there. Um, I think that that might generate a hypothesis of something to go look at. So presumably maybe they started with, you know, getting them to a 90 or 94% was harder in that group because they had longer downtime with no intervention. Yeah. Um, but that's something, you know, that's an interesting subgroup to consider for future study. Yeah, absolutely. And some of the best research, right, leads to, leads to other questions to answer. <laughs> Most research generates more questions than it answers. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Um, but I, I do think that this study provides a lot of important insight. And we talk about why is it important to do randomized control trials or, you know, these, inter these trials where we have really solid real world data, not just, um, you know, in a lab or with animals or something like that, we could get to really different answers. Um, now, by and large, we talked about how the data that we have here favor the standard of care. So the 98 to hundred percent, but to me, the question still remains a little bit unanswered. 
should the group of comparison have been 98 to 100? Is that the standard of care? Or you know, should we be looking at normoxia of like 96 to 98%? Um, I, I think that's a really important question. That doesn't mean that this has been answered definitively and that we should all just free flow oxygen again forever and ever. Um, but we should be vigilant around this rate of 90 to 94%, which I won't call hypoxia, but you know, maybe like permissive hypertension, permissive hypoxia. Uh, I don't know, but I, I would say I'd be very cautious around targeting those low numbers, especially because we saw not just the survival outcomes were lower, but things like rearrest were higher and all of these negative outcomes. Uh, but the question for me that remains unanswered is what happens when we compare to that normoxia or that middle range? And the authors acknowledge this is this is a further question for further study for sure. Yeah, and they did mention um, when they when they put in their results into context mm -hmm. that um, the European Society uh, for Intensive Care Medicine guidelines they suggest recommending a target for ninety four to ninety eight. So <clears throat> this was they were on either side of that coin, and I think um, uh, had had they had they compared something within those guidelines, we might we might have different answers. Yep, absolutely. So definitely more work to be done, but cautious eye towards, you know, using these lower targets as our post-ROSC SpO2 targets. Um, and I know that we're coming up on the end of time, so I, I do want to wrap us up, but there was something really cool in this paper. and <laughs> I've seen it in a couple of different journals, but I do want to share it with you all. And that's this visual abstract. I think it, it does a really cool job of summarizing the key findings succinctly um, and really giving an idea of what happened in the study. So starting with the question of, you know, what were they trying to compare? What were they trying to do? Does targeting an oxygen saturation of 90 to 94 compared with 98 to 100 result in better outcomes? Um, and then right there, the conclusion cut straight to the chase. If you didn't read any further and didn't want to look at the picture, well, the authors concluded that targeting an SpO2 of 90 to 94% compared to the 98 to 100 um, until admission to the ICU did not improve survival to discharge. And, you know, I, we could take this a little bit further and say it could even cause harm. The estimates were not in favor of that group at all. And I think that this is nice. You, uh, I'm sure that they presented uh, this these data in an abstract form beforehand, or maybe in a poster. And uh, this is a nice way to take that work from your poster into your into your manuscript. And and I do think that uh, visually it helps tell the picture, tell the story uh, in in an appropriate way. Yep. Uh, so I think again, the authors should be commended on taking on such a difficult study design and in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, and not giving to... up when things got a little rough. I mean, that was that the, they they made they certainly uh, made lemonade when they had some lemons, and I think that they should be commended for that. Absolutely. Um, so I know that we're winding down. I do want to remind you all that we will be back here with the last clinical podcast of 2022 in December, on December 12th, that's Monday at 12 noon central. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks for working with us on this new platform. I think it's been great. Um, thanks for your participation. And we look forward to nerding out some more on the next one. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA 
and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey, and ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data.
We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Thank you.